Take a Bible and find John 15 and 16. We've read the passage, but we're going to reference it regularly this morning, so you want to have a copy of the Scriptures close by. There's some notes in the bulletin. You can track along with some of the main thoughts that we're going to talk about. The passage that we read a few moments ago, the passage that we're studying, is a remarkable passage of Scripture. And When you say something like that, the implication is other passages in the Scriptures are not remarkable. And I'm not commenting on the other parts of the Scriptures that we're not studying this morning. I'm simply looking at these verses and just acknowledging the fact that this is a remarkable passage. The things that Jesus says here are brutally honest. They're refreshingly honest. They're things that are an interesting mix of encouraging and challenging and hopeful and frightening all at the same time. And it's a passage that is certainly timely in the year 2020 in the United States of America as we think about what does it mean to be a follower of Jesus, a disciple of Jesus in this country in this time. This passage is part of the farewell discourse. Sometimes it's called the upper room discourse. Uh, The whole conversation took place in the context of the Passover. Jesus is celebrating the Passover with the disciples. He is less than 12 hours from the cross, and he's saying farewell. He's saying goodbye. The disciples are troubled that Jesus is leaving and that according to Jesus, they won't be going with him at this time. So they're bothered, they're concerned, they're troubled, they're fearful. Jesus is trying to encourage them, but he's also trying to prepare them. He is trying to prepare them for what is literally moments away, but he's also preparing them for a lifetime of faithfully following after him. In this passage, there's a couple of vocabulary words I want you to pay attention to. One is the word world. It shows up six times in the early part of this passage, over and over and over again, the world, the world, the world. Then it disappears, and Jesus doesn't talk about the world, or he doesn't use the word world again. What he does is he uses these pronouns 18 times, they, their, and whoever, all of those referencing back to the world. And he's talking about the world, not in terms of the physical planet, In the New Testament, in the Gospel of John, when you read this term world, it almost always refers to the fallen world system that stands in opposition to God. It has a negative spiritual connotation. The world is not just the globe or the rock that we live on. The world is not just all of the people who live on that rock. The world is the fallen mass of humanity that stands in defiance to God, in defiance to his rules, in defiance to his authority. That's what John's talking about. That's what Jesus is talking about when we read the word world in this passage. One more thought before we get to the big idea. This is a a short rabbit trail we're going to make an excursion on and we'll come back quickly. When you look at a verse like John 15, 22 or 15, 24, One of the interpretive tools that we have to use is what we call using Scripture to interpret Scripture. What I mean is these two verses, verse 22 and verse 24, are a little bit challenging to make sense of. Look at what Jesus says, John 15, 22. If I had not come and spoken to them, they would not have been guilty of sin, but now they have no excuse for their sin. 
And then verse 24, if I had not done among them the works that no one else did, they would not be guilty of sin, but they have seen. Now they have seen, and they have both hated me and my Father. On the surface, you may get the impression that Jesus is saying there's a group of people who were sinless until I showed up and they heard me speak and they saw me perform these signs. Then they rejected me, and now they're guilty of sin. But that's not what Jesus is saying. We use Scripture to make sense of Scripture. We think about a passage like Genesis 6, 5, way back at the beginning of the Bible, right on the heels of the fall in Genesis 3. God looks on mankind and says, all of the intentions of their heart are only evil continually. That's the world, the fallen mass of humanity in defiance to God. We think about Romans 3.23. All have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. There is no person or group of persons out there who aren't guilty of sin. What Jesus is saying here is there are a group of people. They lived on the earth. They heard Jesus teach. They saw him perform the most amazing miracles. They hardened their hearts to what was plainly evident in front of them. And they will be held responsible for that specific sin in addition to all of their other sins. They will not get a pass for their hardness of heart and their rejection of Jesus. Now, that brings us to the big idea of this passage. It's very simple. Disciples of Jesus should expect, should be our expectation that we'll be hated by the world. That's what these verses are about. If you're a disciple of Jesus, a follower of Jesus, you should have every expectation that the world will hate you. I've told you this story before. I think it's a good place to tell it again. I want to tell you about a man named Polycarp. He lived in the late first century, early second century. He was the bishop of Smyrna, which meant he was sort of the head pastor of all the churches there in Smyrna in Asia Minor. It was about the year 160. He was about 50, excuse me, 86 uh, years old, and he got arrested. 86-year-old man, a bishop, he was arrested. The Roman authorities arrested him because he refused to burn incense to Caesar and to say the words, Caesar is Lord. Every Roman citizen, once a year, had to perform this task. It was part of the cult of emperor worship. You had to take a small pinch of incense, you had to burn it in the fire, and as you burned it, you had to say the words, Caesar is Lord. And Polycarp refused. Many people just did it without even thinking about it, without really meaning what they said, but Polycarp said, I can't do that. I can't in good conscience burn the incense and say that Caesar is Lord because I believe that Jesus is Lord, that Christ is Lord. So he refused which means he was arrested. The Romans didn't allow treason. They didn't allow disobedience. They took Polycarp to the arena in Smyrna, and they held a public trial. On the side, the Roman officials said to this feeble 86-year-old man, just do it. No one wants to kill an 86-year-old man publicly. Just do it. This was Polycarp's answer. It's a famous answer. He said, 86 years I've served him, speaking of Jesus. He has done me no wrong. How could I blaspheme my king and my savior? 
They looked at Polycarp and they said, Polycarp, you understand that we have the authority to feed you to wild animals. He didn't flinch. They said, Polycarp, you understand that we have the authority to burn you alive. And do you know what he said back? That sounds better than burning in hell. So they burned him alive. They killed him. That same story throughout church history, 2,000 years of church history, in some form or fashion has been repeated over and over and over and over and over again. You see it many times throughout the history of the Roman Empire. Christians persecuted to the death for their faith. You saw it more recently in Nazi Germany where Christians, true Christians who stood for the truth of the gospel were not allowed to keep their lives. You saw it countless times and continue to see it countless times in Soviet countries like the former Soviet Union, communist countries like the former Soviet Union or China. Christians persecuted for their faith regularly. Communist nations like North Korea. You see it in predominantly Catholic Nations where Protestants are often singled out and persecuted for their faith. You see it in places like India where Hinduism is the dominant faith. And you say, well, don't the, the Hindus and the Buddhists, don't they just believe everyone should live and let live? No, they believe the Christians should be killed. And they regularly kill them. Same story plays out in North Africa and the Middle East, places where radical Islam is the dominant worldview, the dominant ideology. It's played out over and over and over and over again. And it makes you stop and say, why does the world hate Christians so much? Why does Polycarp's story get played on repeat over and over and over and over again? Jesus actually answers that question right here in this passage. He tells us why the world hates Christians. Here's the first reason, is because Jesus chose us to be his servants, Jesus says, one of the reasons the world hates you is because I chose you to be my servants. Look at verse 18. He says, if the world hates you, you just need to understand that it hated me before it hated you. The master was hated. The servant should expect to be hated too. Verse 19, you, if you were of the world, the world would love you. But you're not of the world. Jesus says, I've chosen you out of the world, and that's why, therefore... Verse 19, the world hates you. Verse 20, remember that I said, a servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. What Jesus is saying here is you are different than the world. I've chosen you out of the world to serve me. That makes you different, and the world hates different. That's just part of human nature. I thought back this week to my time in high school. When I was in high school, the late 90s, the people who really wanted to be different, we called them goths. And they wore all black, and they stood on the same corner every morning at Amarillo High School, and they smoked their cigarettes regardless of how cold it was in Amarillo, and they listened to the the scariest music you could come up with. And it was a strange thing. This group of people that wanted to be different all looked the same. They wore the same things. They listened to the same things. They had the same stickers on their car. They wanted to be so different, but they only wanted to be different within the confines of conformity. That's sort of human nature. There's a sense in which we want to be different, but not too different. The world hates different. Jesus says, I've chosen you out of the world to be my servants. You're different. 
That's why the world hates you. One commentator makes this observation. We won't dwell on it long, but he said, many professing Christians never experience any hatred from the world because they don't serve Jesus. Might be true of us. I think there's some other things at play in the United States, but this certainly might be part of the equation. If the world doesn't hate us, it might be that we're not actually serving Jesus. Jesus says here, I've chosen you out of the world. I've chosen you to be my servants. Therefore, the world hates you. Reason number two, why does the world hate Christians? The world does not know the triune God. It's lost. It's in defiance and rebellion against God. It does not know Father, Son, and Spirit. Look at verse 21. All these things they will do to you on account of my name. Why? Because they don't know him who sent me. Jesus sent by the Father. He says the reason they're going to hate you is that they don't know the Father who sent me. Look at what he says in verse 23. It's even stronger. He says whoever hates me hates my Father. There is no category of person who has no love for Jesus but who has love for God. That person does not exist. If you have no love for Jesus, you have no love for the Father who sent Jesus. Look what he says in verse 26. He says, the helper's going to come. I'll send him from the Father. He's the spirit of truth. He proceeds from the Father. He'll bear witness about me. He'll bear witness about Jesus. If the world hates the Father and they hate Jesus, they certainly don't want anything to do with the Holy Spirit who comes from the Father and who points people to Jesus. The world does not know the triune God. It's one of the reasons that they hate Christians. Number three, why does the world hate Christians? It's because Scripture must be fulfilled. This may seem like a a strange thought, but it's what Jesus says in verse 25. He says, the word that is written in their law must be fulfilled. Then he quotes Psalm 69, and he says, they hated me without a cause. Psalm 69 is written by King David. Apparently, King David did not have my hairstyle because in Psalm 69, he says, the number of people who hate me without cause is more than the hairs on my head. It wasn't just one person. It was a lot of people. That was his experience as king. They hated me without cause, without any real justification. Jesus is the son of David. He's the true king of Israel, and he says that That reality, what David experienced, ultimately teaches you something about me. They hated Jesus without cause. And he said the scripture had to be fulfilled in this sense. Just like they hate Jesus as the fulfillment of scripture, they hate Christians as the fulfillment of scripture. One more reason, number four, why does the world hate Christians? The world thinks they are right. And let's be honest, most of us do think that we're right. When we think that we're wrong, we change our minds. The world thinks that they're right. They think that we're wrong, and they think that they are on the right side of history. You understand when a group of Jewish men circled around a Christian named Stephen, and they began to throw rocks at him until he was dead, they thought they were right, and Stephen was wrong. You understand that when one of those men, Saul of Tarsus, began to persecute Christians and throw them into prison and call for their lives, he did it because he was zealous for what he thought was the truth. He thought he was right. And you understand that when Saul 
converted to faith in Jesus and later changed his name to Paul, and he began to be persecuted by the Jewish leaders, they thought they were right, and they thought Paul was a heretic. They really thought that they were right. You understand that when Herod Agrippa took James, the brother of John, the son of Zebedee, John, who wrote this gospel, and he had his head forcibly removed from his body, Herod Agrippa thought he was doing the right thing. The people applauded him. They cheered him on. He thought he was right. You understand in the 1500s when two men, Thomas Cranmer and Nicholas Ridley, were burned alive simply because they were Protestants, those carrying out their execution thought they were right. In fact, a priest preached a sermon while those two men burned. They thought they were right. They thought those men were wrong. You understand that when ISIS beheads a Christian or when the Taliban persecutes Christians, they think they're serving God. They think they're right. They think that we're wrong. You understand when the Marxists talk about the elimination and the extinction of Christianity, they think they're on the right side of history and we're on the wrong side. This is what Jesus is talking about in John 16 verse 2 where he says, they will put you out of the synagogues Indeed, the hour is coming when whoever kills you will think he is offering service to God. They think you're wrong. They think we're wrong, and they think that they're right, morally, spiritually, in the right. It's one of the reasons that Jesus says the world hates Christians. For all these reasons, the world hates us. We experience that hatred in a number of different ways. Uh, Jesus mentions four in this passage. I'll give them to you quickly. He mentions hatred. He mentions persecution. He mentions excommunication. And he mentions murder. Hatred, persecution, excommunication, murder. We'll just take them one at a time quickly. Uh, You could define hatred as strong feelings of dislike or displeasure or disgust. Say, I hate vegetables, displeased with them. I dislike them. They disgust me. That's a feeling that the world has towards Christians. You understand, in this country, the cultural elite in this nation feel that way about Bible-believing Baptists. Disgust, dislike, displeasure. It's hatred. Jesus talked about it right here. Persecution. There's a great Baptist Greek scholar named A.T. Robertson. Uh, He did a lot of different defining of Greek terms and explaining Greek terms. He said that this word persecution, literally in your mind what you ought to think about, is an animal, a wild animal chasing down its prey. Think the lions and the gazelles on Discovery Channel. Think Shark Week and the poor little seals. That's the picture, this word persecution. Hunting them down with intent to harm. Excommunication. Jesus in verse 2 mentions the synagogues. He doesn't mention churches because there aren't any churches yet. There are synagogues. And he says, you understand, they're going to put you out of the synagogues. It's a strange thought. Eventually, they'll put you out of the churches. There are places in the world today where you can be kicked out of the church for believing the truth of the Scripture. And lastly, he mentions murder, they'll kill you. In the year 1415, there was a council in Germany. It's called the Council of Constance. 
a number of Protestant leaders were put on trial. One of those leaders was a man named John Huss. This is about 100 years before Martin Luther. Martin Luther would look back on John Huss and he would say, this was one of the guys that got the ball rolling. This is one of the guys that started the whole thing. Huss was on trial just because he taught and believed things that did not align with the official teaching of the Roman Catholic Church. At this trial, Council of Constance, 1415, they excommunicated him first when he refused to recant, and then they burned him alive. They killed him. It's exactly what Jesus is talking about. Another man on trial at the same council is a man named John Wycliffe. Here's the funny thing. Wycliffe was dead for 30 years when they held the Council of Constance. But he had been one of the people leading the charge to translate the Bible into English, into the common language of the people. He had been critical of the excesses of the Roman Catholic Church. So when they held this council 30 years after his death, they literally exhumed his body, brought him to the council, tried him, excommunicated him for heresy, burned his remains and his books, and threw the ashes into the river. You say, what in the world is going on at this council? It's exactly what Jesus is talking about. John 15 and 16, how do we experience the hatred of the world? It's disgust, it's persecution, it's excommunication, it's murder. As Americans, this seems a little bit distant, thankfully. It seems a little bit distant to most of us. It seems distant because we live in a nation that was founded, among other ideals, on the ideal of religious liberty. You understand, in the 13 colonies, religious liberty wasn't always the norm. As the colonies began to be settled and colonized, several of them had official religions, official denominations of that particular state. But when the colonies came together and formed the United States of America, one of the principles, one of the ideals that governed them was this idea of religious liberty, that people who live in this country should have the freedom to worship as they see fit without being coerced by the government in one direction or the other. It's why the founders, when they wrote the very first amendment to the Constitution of the United States, said this, Congress shall make no law respecting an establishment of religion or prohibiting the free exercise thereof. That doesn't say that no politician can be religious. It says the United States government will not make a law regarding the establishment of one particular religion will not prohibit the free exercise thereof or abridging the freedom of speech or the press or the right of the people to peaceably assemble to petition the government for redress of grievances. Our experience as Americans of having religious liberty is rooted in the First Amendment. It's something I'm thankful for. It's something on a week like Thanksgiving that we ought to give thanks for. It's something that I hope my kids and my grandkids and your kids and your grandkids grow up to live under. Do you understand that's not guaranteed at all? There's no clause in John 15 or 16 that says you should expect to live in a country that recognizes religious liberty. If you do, be thankful. But there's no promise that we're going to live in such a place. In fact, one can very easily conceive a situation in our nation where the government begins to favor secularism over religion in general. 
It wouldn't be favoring the Lutherans or the Methodists over the Baptists or the Presbyterians, but it would be favoring a secular worldview, a godless worldview, over one that believes in God and believes in the authority of the Scriptures. That's conceivable. You understand that the institutes of higher education in this country, for the most part, are dominated by secular people. You understand that media and social media in this country is largely controlled by secular people, people who have no reference to the existence of God or the authority of the Scriptures. You understand that the entertainment industry in this country, highly influential for the way that people think about things, is largely dominated by a secular worldview. They might throw a bone to God every now and then, but what they really believe at the core of their hearts, their worldview, is secular in nature. It discounts God and it rejects the authority of his word. It's conceivable that in this country, the government might begin to favor a secular worldview at the expense of religious liberty. As Christians, you ought to pray that that doesn't happen. You ought to vote for people who support religious liberty, who are willing to uphold it even when it's not popular, and it's certainly not. But as a Christian, don't be surprised if it goes away. Don't be surprised. Jesus is telling you right here what you ought to expect. If you don't experience all that Jesus is talking about here, be grateful and be thankful. But if you do begin to experience what Jesus is talking about here, don't be surprised. That brings us to the last question we're going to think about. Why does Jesus want his disciples to expect this kind of hatred? Three reasons. Number one, Jesus does not want his people to fall away when they experience hatred. He does not want his people to fall away. Look what he says in John 16, verse 1. I have said all of these things to you to keep you from falling away. The teaching of Jesus, in particular, the farewell discourse, is not a timeshare sales pitch where you get promised one thing and then you wake up the next day and you realize you bought something else. Do you remember last week we talked about the benefits of knowing the Father through the power of the Spirit in a relationship with the Son? Here's the benefits of being a Christian. You get eternal life. That's a pretty good one right off the top. Eternal life. You get to live forever in a perfect place. You can live a life that glorifies God, meaning you can do what God actually created you to do. You get answered prayer. You talk to God the creator and he answers your prayers. You have joy, not like the world offers that's cheap and temporary, but genuine joy. And you're friends with Jesus. We talked about all those ideas last week. As a follower of Jesus, those are some of the benefits. You understand we've chopped this passage into parts. Jesus didn't chop it into parts. He just kept talking. Here's what else he promised. Hatred, persecution, excommunication, murder. It's a package deal. Jesus is not trying to hide any of it from anyone. And he says, I'm telling you all of this, the good, the bad, and the ugly, so that when it happens, you don't fall away. William Tyndale exemplifies the mindset that we've got to have. William Tyndale was killed. He was hanged for finishing 
the Bible translation that Wycliffe started into English, some of his last words were these, I never expected anything else. I didn't expect anything different. Jesus didn't promise me anything different. I didn't have any expectation that this would go any other way than me being killed. Jesus says, I'm telling you this so that when it happens, you don't fall away. Number two, why does he want us to expect hatred? Jesus wants his people to rely on the helper. The helper. John 15, 26. When the helper comes, whom I will send from the Father, the Spirit of truth who proceeds from the Father, he will bear witness about me. That word helper is the Greek word we talked about a few weeks ago, paraclete. It's a tricky word to put into English. Essentially, it means a paraclete is someone who comes alongside to help you in a time of trouble. That's a big, long word, and so we put it in English and say helper. This helper comes alongside of you to help you in a time of trouble. When you go through the things Jesus is talking about, you don't go through them alone. You have somebody close by. You have somebody who's literally in you, with you. It's the spirit of truth. It's the helper. Whether you realize it or not, you need the helper to be a Christian on this world. The Christian life is like a constant battle. It's like a war. You battle your own flesh, right? The battle isn't just out there, it's in here. You need the Spirit to help you in that. Paul says, as Christians, we war, we battle, we wrestle against principalities and powers, against spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places that we can't even see. We war against them, we wrestle against them. We need help in that fight. And while we don't wage war against the world with weapons, physical weapons, guns and knives and bombs and planes and tanks, there is a sense in which we're in conflict with the world. And Jesus says, look, in all of this conflict, you have a helper. Rely on him. Number three, why does Jesus want us to expect this hatred? Jesus does not want the hatred of the world to stop the mission of the church. I'll be real honest with you. When I, when I read these kinds of passages, and yes, I mean there's more of them in the New Testament that say the exact same thing. When I read these kinds of passages, my gut instinct, my visceral response is to say, sell the house, move to the wilderness, get a compound, dig a big hole in the ground, and get away from all of that nonsense. I'll be a, a doomsday prepper. And I'll just live out in the wilderness and I'll be all by myself and I don't have to worry about any of it. But you know, that's not what Jesus calls us to do. The marching orders of the king are not for his people to retreat. This is what Jesus says, verse 27. Right after he says this stuff about the helper, he says, you also will bear witness. You're going to bear witness. You're going to look the world in the eye and you're going to tell them the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Do you know why? God is going to continue to choose people out of the world and bring them out of the world just like he brought you and me out of the world. He's going to continue to save people. He's going to take, continue to take people who are part of the kingdom of darkness and make them citizens of the kingdom of his son whom he loves. 
this is the idea exemplified in Tyndale's life. I told you some of his last words were, I never expected anything else. These were his very last words as he was burned alive. Lord, open the king of England's eyes. Not, let's start a revolution and get a new king. Not, God, sick him. God, save him. Open his eyes. I'm going to keep bearing witness to the truth about Jesus. And God, you keep opening eyes to the truth of the gospel. This hatred does not stop. It ought not stop the mission of the church. Jesus says in the midst of telling us all of these brutally honest things, I'm going to send you the helper. He's going to bear witness about me. And through you, he's going to continue to bear witness, meaning you're going to be that witness. You're going to keep opening your mouth and telling people about the king, the king who is faithful and gracious and kind and loving. And I'm going to keep plucking people out of the world and bringing them into my kingdom and the mission will advance.